Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day. And it's a joy to have our friends and our visitors with us as well. And hope that you've thus far been edified and encouraged by our joining together in the corporate worship of God. And we want to continue now by giving careful attention to the preaching of God's Word. And I invite you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, let's give our attention this morning, picking up in verse 34 and focusing through verse 38. Mark 8, let's begin reading in verse 34. This is the Word of God. Let us hear it with attentive and reverent hearts. Mark 8, 34. When He, that is the Lord Jesus, had called the people to Himself, with His disciples also, He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Let us pray. Let's unite our hearts and ask that God would bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Blessed Jesus, at Thy Word, we have gathered all to hear Thee. Father, this is the prayer that we've just sung to Your Son. Your Son who is worthy of our prayers. Your Son who answers our prayers by sending His Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds. We pray, Father, please grant our request Let us to sit with humble feet and humble hearts and listen to the wisest, not only the wisest one, but wisdom even incarnate. Your Son came amongst us, God in the flesh, and we as sinners regarded Him as foolishness. But You have taught us inwardly by Your Spirit that in Him is found all the fountain of wisdom. From everlasting to everlasting, wisdom resides in the Son of God. His words are life. His words are true. Heaven and earth will pass away, He said, but His words will never pass away. And so, Father, give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray. 
Give us pliable hearts. Father, deliver us from simply listening intellectually, merely to learn, but that we would sit in order to learn, in order to be transformed, in order to obey. Father, there is not a one of your people this morning, including myself, including our elders, including all of us, who does not stand convicted by the high calling of discipleship that Jesus lays out for his people. There's not a one of us who sits who is not pricked in conscience about how we know the battle that we wage every day in our own hearts that the old man is constantly pulling us back, seeking to get us to forsake Christ and to love the world. The flesh and the devil seeking to get us to forsake our own soul for the fleeting things of this world. And yet Jesus teaches us very, very very clearly that we are to repudiate this world and that we are to take up our cross and we are to follow Him. Father, we pray for the power of Your Spirit. May He come and descend upon Your people here at Bethany with power. May all of us experience afresh an experience with God as we meet with You in Your Word. And may Your Word land heavy upon our hearts. And may we receive it with sincerity and humility and eagerness. Father, we pray this morning for any who are here who do not know Christ. There are no doubt some who outright reject Christ. There are others who profess Christ but do not truly possess Him. Father, as we sang, we pray that as we know by nature all of our thinking lies shrouded in darkness, we pray for Your Spirit to come and to break our night. Do it for Your glory, we pray. Come in the preaching of Your Word. Change Your people from one degree of glory to the next. Wean us from this world. Cause us to be able to say with Paul that we have been crucified to this world and this world has been crucified to us. May we gladly bear in our bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus. Father, give us assurance as we see that we share truly in the sufferings of Christ. Bring us assurance that that is evidence that we will also be with Him to share in His glory. Father, we pray for the afflicted, for the persecuted, for the downcast. Lord, make Your Word a particular encouragement to them, we pray. Be with our church today, we ask. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. That was the journal entry found in Jim Elliott, a missionary's journal, written on October 28, 1949. 
And it's a paraphrase of Jesus' words here. Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for eternal life. When Jim Elliot wrote that quote, he did not write it for the world to read. He had no idea that, would ever have, that anyone would ever lay, lay eyes upon it. It was not his climactic ending of an eloquent speech that he gave. He was simply a devoted Christian man writing in his journal who earnestly believed in his God. He was barely 22 when he wrote that entry. He graduated Wheaton College that same year, and he was wrestling with what it meant to live for Christ. Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was wrestling with what that meant. What does it truly mean to live for Christ? Because that's what his faithful parents had always pressed upon all their children. That they had told their children, kids, be faithful, bold Christians. Jim Elliot began meeting with a former missionary to study how to begin learning a foreign language of a foreign people group. And it was this former missionary who first introduced or told Jim Elliot about the Alka Indians in Ecuador. Alka literally means savages. They were a people group known to be violent, dangerous, And even though Elliot knew that, he was wrestling between whether he should go to the Alka or whether he should go to India. His parents and friends wondered if Jim Elliot wouldn't be more useful doing youth ministry here in the U.S. where it's safe. No doubt Jim had already proven himself to be a very gifted speaker and preacher and they thought he would have a very fruitful ministry here in the States. But things like Jesus' words in our passage were rattling around Jim Elliot's heart and mind. And so he set his face for Ecuador. He and his four friends, whose names heaven will forever remember, Jim Elliot, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint, All of them, young and married, went to Ecuador to reach the Alca Indians. And they began to make contact with the Alca by first circling their plane overhead the tribe and occasionally slowly dropping down good gifts that would have been symbols of the missionaries' goodwill towards the people. And at a certain point, they determined or thought that they had built enough credibility with the people that they could then land the plane and begin to make personal contact with them. And after some positive encounters with some small groups or small numbers of the group, even having given an airplane ride to one of the, the tribe's people, they determined that it was time to make contact with the main tribe. And unbeknownst to them, but completely known to God, the very man who had had enjoyed the plane ride that they had given 
had lied to the rest of the people about the true intentions of the missionaries. And the missionaries, before they had any idea of what was happening, were ambushed about ten of the tribe. And all five of these men were speared to death on the beach. Seven years after his journal entry, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott and his four friends sealed that statement with their very own blood. Christian, what do we say to that? What does the world say to that? A 28 or 29-year-old man with his four friends, all newly married, could have easily stayed safe in the United States, had productive, fruitful ministry, and yet he goes and before he even gets the word of the Gospel, his blood is shed as the blood of the martyrs. What do we say? We dare not say a life wasted. Because Jesus said it is a a life truly lived. Jesus says right here in Mark 8, that is a life truly gained. A life that died to the world. A life that valued stuff less than it valued the glories of God and the kingdom of God. And a life that loved Christ more than it loved the approval of men. Jim Elliot and his four friends are truly those of whom Hebrews speaks of, those of whom the world was not worthy. And he's not alone. Throughout the history of the church, there have been countless millions, just like Jim Elliot, who in their lives wrestled with these words of the Lord Jesus and realized, I must either follow Christ completely or I cannot follow Him at all. And they followed him, many of them literally to their own death. Who were willing to forsake everything. To die to the world, to die to themselves, because they believed Christ in heaven, my prize, is well worth it. They believed, be thou my vision. Christian, this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It is to follow Him and die. And yet, so much of contemporary Christianity teaches us the exact opposite. And it teaches us that the cross is something that we admire from afar, but that it is not necessarily something we must bear. A.W. Tozer wrote 75 years ago, he said, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross humbled men. The new cross amuses them. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. 
And he said, upon that cross, it, speaking of modern evangelicalism, upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of that cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. Brothers and sisters, we, I mean, that was 75 years ago. We could add to that list what the new cross of evangelicalism offers. Promises of self-esteem, self-worth, promises fixed relationships, promises prosperity, promises temporal blessing. But what does Jesus say? He speaks very openly and He says, if you would be My disciple, you will be hated by all men for My sake. He tells His apostles before He dies that they will be put out of the synagogue and that there is a time coming in which people will put them to death and actually think they are offering service to God. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, that God has made us the filth of the world, the offscourings of all things. 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul says, for we who live are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. He says to Timothy, a pastor, 1 Timothy 3.12, he who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he tells the entire church in Acts 14.22, through many trials and tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, it is time that we reform the way that we think about Christian discipleship. It is time that we re-link, as the Bible does, Christ's cross with our cross. Indeed, the twelve disciples themselves here needed this very connection to be made. Because, Christian, what you think of Christ and His mission here on earth has a direct impact about what you will think then about yourself as His follower and, your, and His disciple. Up until this point in Mark's Gospel, the disciples have been thinking wrongly of Christ's mission. As you already know, the general consensus of the Jews in this day was that when Messiah comes, He was going to come in immediate glory and splendor. And the disciples, having just convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they are thinking to themselves, if the Christ is amongst us, and if He's come to receive His crown, and His robe, and His glory, and if we are His chosen twelve, certainly that means that our glory is coming. Which is why Peter in verse 32, if you just glance up, has just rebuked Jesus for even suggesting that He should ever suffer and die. They are thinking, if our Master has come to reveal His glory... 
then I guess that means that it must be time for our glory as well. After all, we're his chosen twelve. You see, they've missed a key point of the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah was not to come straight from glory to glory, but rather to come from glory to the cross in humiliation and then to glory. And as we dive into this passage, I want, you to show you, I want to show you first of all how this passage breaks up in terms of outline. If you look at it in your Bible and then we'll, we will work our way through it. Jesus' topic sentence, if you will, His main point is found in verse 34. To be a Christian is to deny yourself and to take up your cross. Okay, that's His topic sentence to these crowds and to His disciples. But then He elaborates on what that looks like practically by giving us three specific ways by which we are called to deny ourselves in the following verses. And you'll notice each of those examples He gives begin with the word for in verse 35, verse 36, and verse 38. Those are Sentences that are elaborating for us what it means to take to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And so what I want to do this morning, first of all, is open up the main idea of verse 34, and then we will briefly look at these three examples in verses 35 through 38. And so if it helps you take notes this morning, I have one main point and then three sub-points. Number one, Christian, to be a sincere Christian is to deny yourself and bear your cross. To be a Christian according to Christ is to deny yourself and bear your cross. Notice verse 34. Jesus says, first of all, calls the crowds to Himself. Okay? This is, that's significant because this is not something... These are not just heavy words that he says, hey, 12, you guys come here. These are some words for the leaders of the church, but he calls everyone. This isn't just for pastors. This is for every Christian. And he says to them, whoever would come after me. And in those words, he's giving us his idea of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Following Christ and coming after Him is not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a one-time thing you do. A one-time thing you sign up for. It is to give over your life to Christ and to give yourself to follow Him forevermore. And, Christian, we need to make clear that as Christ calls these disciples to Himself to hear what will be true of all true followers of Christ, we need to make sure we don't get it backwards. What He's not saying here is that, listen to me everybody, this is what you must do in order to merit the Kingdom of God. That's not what He says. 
Christian, you don't deny yourself and then take up your cross in order to become a Christian and a member of His kingdom. We receive the kingdom freely, but Christ is laying out for us what happens and what are the fruits of the disciple upon whom Christ has truly laid hold. These are the Spirit-wrought responses of the grace of God in the child of God. Notice Jesus' requirement. He calls everyone to Himself and He says, listen to Me, whoever would come after Me. The first requirement of discipleship is that we must deny ourselves. We must deny ourselves. And the word for deny here is literally the word disown or repudiate. It's a very strong word. It's the same word that Peter used in his outright denial when he said of Christ, I do not know the man. I deny the man. That is to be, Christian, our relationship to ourselves. Now, just stepping back, and especially if you're not acquainted with the Bible, that probably sounds like a very strange way to talk. How do I disown who I am? Listen to me very carefully if you're confused at this point. I'll try to clarify. Simply put, to disown and to repudiate ourselves means to turn our backs on the sinful, rebellious self that was at the center of every one of us by nature. The Apostle Paul describes the same concept using the the, uh, different language when he commands Christians over and over to put off or put to death the old man. Paul also refers to it as the flesh because it is what we are in ourselves apart from the grace of God and the Spirit of God in our lives. And Christian, if you're you're a Christian here this morning, you know exactly what Jesus means by repudiate what you are. Because you know the battle. You're a new man in Christ and you know that because you're a new man, you have from the very inception of that new creation been at war with the old man. But if you're here and you're an unbeliever this morning, outside of Christ, you need to realize all you are still is that old man. Unbeliever, listen to me. You may not even realize this this morning. Because you may not be well acquainted and biblically literate, and that's part of the church's job. That's why one of the reasons I'm thankful you're here is so you can be instructed from God's Word about what He says about you. But you may be here this morning and you don't even realize that who and what you are right now is light years away from what God created you to be. We were all, all of us, black, white, slave-free, male, female, We were all created by God in our first parents, Adam and Eve, holy and upright. 
Adam and Eve had hearts that loved God and cherished the glory of God above all else. They had hearts that loved to submit to God's Word. But now, because of their tragic fall into sin and subsequently our being now sinful in them, we are now corrupt. And we are corruptions of what we once were. We now love everything that's contrary to the God who made us. We love that which is sinful. And we hate that which is God. And we try to close our eyes to that which is good and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we would rather all rule ourselves rather than be ruled by God. And Jesus calls through His Word to every single one of you in this room that old self which belongs to sin and death that will lead to hell, He says to you, turn, to, turn from it. Put it to death. Hate it. And follow Me and take up your cross. He does not call you to merely reform parts of your life to try to mend some shortcomings you might have. He calls you with full abandon to turn from your old self and to follow him. But he goes even further. He says we must not only deny ourselves, but with that we must take up our cross. Now Christian, the cross in our day is a symbol that has lost it all but lost its scandal. This is the first mention of the word cross in Mark's gospel and I promise you, the moment it left the Lord Jesus' lips, it would have absolutely shocked His hearers. Because what they knew of the cross was the horrible, shameful, painful sight of a condemned criminal carrying his own instrument of execution to the place of his own death. It would have been a scandalous image. And Jesus says to them, if you want to follow Me, that is the Christian life. You know, brothers and sisters, it's not even appropriate to joke about preachers who make a mockery of the Gospel by saying that the Gospel is that Jesus promises our best life now. That's not even funny. Because it's a repudiation and a mockery of Christ's words. Make sure, Christian, you see the connection between denying yourself and taking up your cross. Okay, there's a connection there. It is precisely because the Christian has turned his back on all that he once was that he now finds himself the object of shame and suffering in the eyes of the world because he's now at odds with the world. Right? And Christian, you understand this. You didn't know this before you became a Christian, but you began to be very aware of it once you were converted. When the lights went on and God made you a new creature, you realize that this world is not like a stagnant lake, but rather, this world 
is like a raging river that has a course and a current and a direction and a way that it is going. And the way that this world is going is towards wickedness and sin and the place that it will end is hell. And when Jesus came into the world as the light of the world, He came fighting exactly against that current, living sinlessly and calling out our deeds of darkness and calling us to repent and to confess our sins to God and seek mercy in Christ. And what did the world do to Christ? It crucified Him. We are all born by nature floating down, going with the current of this world. But the moment the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, plucks one and another and another by His grace and says, no longer are you following the world, you are following Me now, we immediately begin swimming against that stream. And because of it, as soon as we turn around, there is a cross with our name written on it waiting for us. And Christian, you know as well as I do that while we are tempted at times to flee that cross, as much as the devil comes to us and tempts us, wouldn't it just be easier to throw away the Christianity business, throw away being faithful, throw away speaking hard words, and just go with the flow when it, like when it was easy? And yet you know that it is nothing except the grace of God by the Spirit of God at work within you that keeps you saying no to the devil and that keeps you pressing on towards that celestial city. Reminding us that no, every agonizing step of the way is worth it when I reach that kingdom of my Father and see the Lord Jesus Christ in the glory of His angels. What kind of pains does this cross bring? This is where I want to begin to move in in just a minute here to the three examples Jesus gives. What kinds of pains does the cross bring? Christian, I will not hide anything from you. I don't need to hide anything from you because you already know it. The cross brings countless pains in this life. Jesus spoke openly and honestly and often that the cross brings divided relationships. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but I came to bring a sword so that the members of one's own household would be His enemies. The cross brings ridicule. You will be scorned for your belief in God. Your belief in a judgment to come. Your belief in heaven and hell. You will be scorned for your upright character and your refusal to partake in the things that the world thinks is common to partake of. To some, brothers and sisters, the cross literally today still brings imprisonment and martyrdom. But these are Jesus' terms. He says to everyone, Come and die if you would have life. 
He doesn't soften it. He simply shows us the cross and He gives the sinner two options. You can either flee from it with eternal consequences or you can embrace it. Christian, does your life bear the marks of being a servant of Christ? Have you ever made a sacrifice for Christ? Paul said to the Galatians at the very end of the epistle, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And if you remember from when we were in Galatians, that was his final proof. You want to know why I'm authentic and the Judaizers are not and that they're just duping you? Look at my body and how I have carried a cross. No one does that except the one who knows that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that His Gospel is true. That brings us to the three practical ways that we must deny ourselves and and die. Three practical ways taken from the remainder of these verses. First of all, verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. These were the words that were mulling around in Jim Elliot's heart and mind. These are the words he paraphrased when he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Christian, Jesus is putting it very, very plainly and simply for us. If we value this temporary life, that's what it means to try to save our lives. If we love this life itself even more than we love Christ, Jesus says we will lose Christ for eternity. But He says if we're willing to lose this fragile, short blip of a life, for Jesus' sake, we will gain eternity with Him. Now, there are at least two applications we should draw from this first thing. And first and foremost, and probably the one that we should speak with most sobriety about, is that the straightforward meaning of Jesus' words that would have been understood by Jesus' original hearers is martyrdom. There are many things that I will speak flippantly about. The blood of the martyrs is not one of them. I know sometimes people have different theological perspectives. They didn't have all their dots, their I's dotted and T's crossed just like we do. But when someone has the courage and the love for Christ to take the Gospel somewhere to the point where they give even their own lives, that is someone who will stand far ahead of me in the line of heaven. That is someone who will be far closer to the throne of Christ than me. We don't talk about martyrdom much in America. And I fear we've domesticated Christ's demands on His followers because of it. 
And brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand me. I understand God's providence. And I understand that we give thanks to God that He has granted that we live in a, in a relatively peaceful place and time. But brothers we and sisters, we have to realize that is the exception to church history, not the norm. And we have to realize that even though that is God's kind providence to us, nonetheless, the demand that we be willing to give even our lives for Christ if it came to it, no less applies to us here in America than it does to anyone else, anywhere else, anyone else, anywhere in the world. But even if martyrdom is not immediately upon us, this is a call, Christian, to die to our quality of life. Right? You can die more... You could die for Christ in more ways than just physically. Christians should purposefully live in such a way that the world looks at us and thinks that we are absolutely out of our mind. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.30, if Christ is not raised, he says, then why am I in jeopardy all the time? In other words, he's saying, if Christ is still dead and there's no resurrection coming after this, why on earth am I purposefully choosing to live the way I'm choosing to live? And Paul says, instead, if Christ isn't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And brothers and sisters, I fear that far too many Christians live as though Christ is not raised from the dead. As though the life to come is not maybe going to be quite enough to make up for some of the joys that I still want to have in this world. Notice Christ's emphasis in verse 35. For His sake and the Gospel's sake. Christians should be purposeful risk-takers for the Gospel. We should be those who make decisions now in this life that to our neighbors look foolish at times, look like a waste at times, look like we're missing out, because guess what? We aren't living for this life. We're living for the life to come. There's so many areas that we could touch on. For instance, Christian, if we examined our wallets, where our money goes, our time, how we use our homes. It, if with just judgment day honesty, if those three things, wallet, time, home, were just to be laid out in front of Christ, would He say, yes, there's enough evidence to say that this was a cross-bearer? Or would He say this was a world-lover? Brothers and sisters, there are thousands upon thousands of people groups right now all across the world who do not have the Scriptures in their language. They have almost no Christian witness, if any Christian witness. False religion and idolatry dominates these places. And I think Jesus is asking us, what are we doing? The fields, he says, John 4, are white unto harvest. Christian, are we dressed and are we equipped to go into the harvest?
You think of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott's very similar to John G. Patton. John G. Patton, before he went to the New Hebrides, which was a cannibalistic island, he was harshly criticized because he had an incredibly fruitful ministry in Scotland. Very fruitful. And even his own peers said, you, you are disobeying the will of God if you leave this to go to that island where you will just be eaten by cannibals. Same thing with Jim Elliot. You imagine the pressures? Not to mention the own heart wrestles of... I mean, no one really honestly wants to just walk into martyrdom. And you're having family tell you, you, you could stay here, Jim. You're already fruitful. And yet, and I don't think that would have been sin, by the way, if he had stayed. But he believed eternal life will far outweigh all of the minuscule sufferings this life can throw my way. And therefore, I'm throwing myself all, my lot all in with Christ. Number two, number two that we must die. We must die to comfort and possessions. We must die to comfort and possessions. Now, this is obviously related and is a subset of what we've just seen, but I just want to briefly draw it out. Verse 36, Jesus asks us, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Christian, non-believer, li listen to me. Jesus is laying before us a scale. And He's saying you can put on one side of that scale all the gold, money, houses, lands. And even if you could enjoy all those things uninterrupted for a thousand lives, he says they weigh about as much as dust on that scale. And then he turns to us and he points to the other side. And he says, but what is the value of your soul? And your soul, knowing Christ forever, is as an anvil as it was, hammering down and weighing down the other side of that scale. Christian, what is stuff? What is stuff that perishes compared to our souls that never die? You know, Jesus talked about riches more than He even talked about hell. He said how difficult it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He told the parable in Luke 12 of the, the rich fool who said who tore down his barns because he had too much stuff. He said, I'm going to tear these down and build more so that I can fit all my stuff. And then I'm going to relax and I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Now it's time to sit and eat and drink and be merry. And God comes to, his soul, to him that very night and says, you fool. For this very night, your soul is required of you. Christian, we know we live in a day in which the prosperity gospel says that the gospel is about God giving people stuff. The real, genuine, biblical gospel is about God freeing us from our idolatry to stuff in order to give it all up to serve 
the King of Kings. Unbeliever, I plead with you to listen to me. And only the Spirit of God can bring this home to your heart in a way that you will genuinely be under conviction. But hear my words. To trade eternity with Christ in the glory of God for even a hundred years. Let's say you get the most years that you're likely to get. 105, 110. And you lived the best possible life. You had minimal suffering. You had just about everything on this planet that it has to offer you to enjoy. And you accept, you chose that over an eternity with Christ. That is a nearsighted bargain. And it's a devilish bargain. And how the devil has lulled to sleep many with that bargain. Especially in America. It's incredible how our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where they're so poor and they have so little absolutely put us to shame with their Christian love and generosity. Even though they have not, they give out of their um, what they do not even have. Christian, how generous and giving are you to others? Do you honestly treat everything you have as on loan to you from God to be used as a steward or to be stewarded for His kingdom? Are you willing to part with anything God calls you to part with if it means serving others and more faithfully serving Christ? Or are there certain things that given the choice you would say, no, I would rather part with Christ before I part with that. Parents, parents, I'm thinking about this with my kids. Okay, so I'll just be honest and vulnerable with you. How are we training our kids and how they view their possessions? When my kids were little, little, they didn't have that much. But as the years have gone by and birthdays happen and Christmas happens and donations happen and goodwill trips happen and they get into their hobbies and whatever, and I'm not saying that all those things are inherently sinful, but I'm realizing how important it is to train our kids, son, it's okay to like that. It's okay for that to be something you give thanks to God for Within reason, but Christian parents, how vital it is to plead with our children. You cannot become an idolater. That my son, I hope, if you heard Christ's word to you today, that to follow Him, you had to throw out your Pokemon or whatever it had to be. Son, I pray you would throw it out the window. Parents, we have to teach our children. Yes, enjoy the good things God gives, but do not let them think it is okay to love those things more than they love Christ. And I'll say this, those are the kinds of households that are going to produce the Jim Elliots. Jim Elliot did not come just randomly out of a household with parents that were indifferent to what Jim got into and Jim cared about. 
They were parents who said, Jim, Paul said live, to live for Christ and to die is gain. And I know that <laughs> they're just the means. It was God the Spirit who made that effective. But let us not forget the means that God uses. Third, thirdly, as we close. <coughs> thirdly, as we close. We must thirdly die to living for the world's approval. We must die to living for the world's approval. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of my words, of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Christian, listen to me. This is what Christ is making clear. And we know this from other passages of the Gospel. Christ refuses to be one of two masters that we go between. Just as He he demands that we choose Him over life itself, He demands us to choose Him over stuff, He also calls us to choose His approval over the world's approval. And that's a hard thing for many people to face who live for the praise of man. Will you live for the immediate ease of going with the flow, never taking a stand, never speaking a hard word that might get you in trouble, or will you live for the deferred approval of the returning glorified King? Because those are the two choices. We will either be despised by the world now or we will be despised by the King of glory on the final day. Christian, it would be better to die a thousand deaths in this life knowing nothing but ridicule. That would be infinitely better than hearing from Christ on the final day. Depart from me, I never knew you. You are too fearful to ever actually follow me. You pretended. You toyed with the line. Enough to where others looked at you and they thought, He's, he seems to be a Christian. I see some fruits of genuine fruit, uh, spiritual fruit. And to hear Christ say to us, but no, you know and I know. You love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Christian, let, let me just close by saying this. We, and I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here. But you have friends, you have family who are in other types of churches who would never hear anything like this. And as a result, you know we live in a world in which there are many professing Christians who are genuinely deceived. And there are countless professing Christians who think that they are good witnesses for Christ, who genuinely know Christ, simply because they are usually in a good mood and they try to smile. 
That's not the standard biblically of what defines a Christian. Jesus didn't come simply being in a good mood and smiling. He came speaking words. And oftentimes those words are offensive words to a world that loves sin. And Jesus expects us to speak words. Christian, believe me, no one will ever mock you and no one will ever be offended by you simply because you say, hey, we should do good deeds to one another. But they will despise you if your life oozes Christ's Word and the whole counsel of God which He shamelessly taught. And if your lips are ready to talk about what Jesus was ready to talk about, sin and the judgment to come, and the wrath to come, and how to be made right with God, and how Christ is the only way to heaven, I guarantee you, Christian, say those things regularly and often and in the presence of many, and you will be hated by all people for Christ's sake. And you will be mocked because of it. You will have eyes roll, tempers rise, friendships dissolve. Perhaps that's one of the most painful of them all. You will be subject to gossip, accused of being a hateful person. But Christian, listen to me. How much better to endure a thousand shamings from men than to have Christ be ashamed of you on that day? Notice finally verse 38. Jesus does not close out this section without pointing their faith towards that coming glory. He reminds them That yes, they're called to suffer. They must lose their life in this life. But He reminds them, just as I'm going to the cross, I'm going to raise three days later and ascend to My Father where I'll intercede for all My people for the entire church age. And then, once the last elect is brought in, I am returning in all My glory, in the glory of My Father and in the presence of the holy angels. And the implication for these disciples and for us is he's saying, and I'm coming to take you to myself. That where I am, there you will be to see my glory. That where I will return to reign forever and ever upon the earth and vanquish sin and the devil and death once for all, you, my faithful servant, shall reign with me. Brothers and sisters, you think about how much more refreshing a cold drink of water is after a long, hot journey through the desert. Such will be the greater. How magnificent will those words be, well done, good and faithful servant, after we have spent a lifetime of being despised by Christ. Only to open our eyes on the other side and to realize He was faithful. And it's all worth it.
Christian, I just want to close by saying this. Let us all settle the matter in our minds and our hearts. Right now is not the time for glory. Now is the time for the cross. Our eternity of glory is coming, but if we are to share Christ's crown, we must share His cross. Let us die to self. Let us take up our cross. Let us bear it with gladness and patience, knowing that Christ, Hebrews 12, He is the author and finisher of our faith, the One who has run the race before us, having sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and we now run after Him, knowing that He will give us grace to complete the race. He is the One who suffered for us outside the camp in a way that we could never suffer. Bearing our actual sins in His sinless body on the tree. Being forsaken of God so that He might bring all of us safely by His grace and by the grace of His Spirit safely into our eternal home. Christian, may we believe by the eye of faith that promise of God. That He is no fool who gives what He cannot keep to gain that which He cannot lose. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Lord, in our weaknesses have mercy. Lord, all of us are broken vessels, weak, failing. Father, we don't hide that from You. We would be foolish if we tried. You know all things. You know our failings more than we do. You knew exactly how Peter would deny you. You knew exactly how we would deny you in so many ways in our lives. And yet this call is for us, for our encouragement. Christ tells this to His people, not that we would become despairing and discouraged as though some sort of perfection is what should be expected in this life, but rather to spur us on to greater depths of dying to self. Father, I do pray for any who are deceived, who think they know Christ and who perhaps have never even been exposed to teachings like this from Him. Lord, give them the grace of questioning whether they know the true Christ. And through that, bring them to a knowledge of Your Word where they meet and believe in the real Christ. Father, strengthen Your saints. Your church will always be marred with sin, we know. And yet, it will always be marked by faithful and bold and courageous saints. You have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Whom have we in heaven but Thee? 
You are our portion forever. May that be more true in our hearts, we pray. Help this to affect everything that we do. As Gary prayed earlier in our conversations, Lord, help us to put off the fear of man and to just speak of Christ. To not be ashamed of the awkwardness, but rather to be driven by a thankfulness for Christ and a care for the soul that stands in front of us. Let us not hide our light under a bushel. Let us die in whatever ways we must die. If it means we lose friends, family, Father, grant us to say sincerely from our hearts, so be it. It's painful, we know, but it is obedience. We pray that we would want to obey you and we would desire your smile more than anything this world offers us. Be with us now, we pray. Go with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.